Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You are now entering the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, a show that uncovers what's fact, what's fake, and what's fun in the crazy world of Pseudo-Archaeology. Hello and welcome to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, episode 130. Can you believe it? And tonight, the life and times of Charles Etienne Brasseur de Bourbourg. With a name like that, there are limited options besides pseudo archaeology. Okay. So what's going on tonight? Well, tonight, my friends, we are dealing with the one and only Charles Etienne Brasseur de Bourbon. But before we get to him, a little health note to all of you out there. Your humble narrator here, Dr. Professor Andrew Kinkella. You know what I did? You know what I did recently for my own health? I had a colonoscopy. Oh, yeah, I did. So what I'm here to tell you is, you guys, it's not that bad. So the worst part of it is the setup, like where you can't eat for a day and you have to take these funky pills and drink a bunch of water or drink like weird stuff. That like the 48 hours before it, that's the part that's a bummer. And it's really just uncomfortable because you can't eat anything. You know what I mean? It's just that. But once you get yourself to the place where you're going to have the procedure, once you get there, like it's gravy after that. It's a piece of cake. No problem. They will put you out and then you actually have a very restful nap. I have to say that my colonoscopy nap was like super restful. And then you wake up and it's all over. So just I'm 51 and it was like past time and I had it done and everything was fine. And they say you don't have to come back for a decade. So I'm just here to say it's like if you have health insurance, you know, and you're like a little weirded out by it or you just feel like embarrassed by it because, dude, it's embarrassing and weird. (laughs) But, dude, here's here's what you got to do. Just laugh it off. Make jokes about it like I do. But just do it. Don't be chicken. It's really it's really not that bad. And it's so worth it. I feel so much better, you guys, that I know. You know what I mean? I'm like, everything's cool. I don't have colon cancer. So that's my little health update for the day because I care about my listeners, man. I care. I bet I care a lot more than Charles Etienne Brasseur de Bourbourg would care about you. Mainly because he's very dead. Charles Etienne Brasseur de Bourbourg was born in 1814 and he's going to die in 1874. So what we care about here 
is that he's doing work in, you know, in the 18, oh, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, right? That's what he's doing. And why are we focusing on this guy in the first place? If you guys remember a couple episodes ago, I did a thing on Ignatius Donnelly. Remember Ignatius Loyola Donnelly? And he wrote the Atlantis book, Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. Remember that? came out in 1881, I think. And we made great fun of Ignatius Loyola Donnelly saying that a name like Ignatius Loyola Donnelly, dude, you know, that's a difficult middle school situation. I think Charles Etienne Brasseur de Bourbourg has the same middle school situation. So why I'm focusing on him is because with Donnelly's Atlantis book from 1881, I'm like, who was he building off of, right? Who were the earlier pseudo-archaeology people? So I've been doing this deep dive, right, going backwards in time. And I saw that Ignatius Donnelly took some of his ideas from Charles Etienne Brasseur de Bourbourg. And when I saw that, I'm, I'm like, wait, that name, Brasseur de Bourbourg, like, that's... That reminds, I've heard this before, man. I've heard this name. And then quite quickly to myself, I was like, I was like, wait, he, I talk about him in the Maya class. Oh my God. Right. Brasseur de Bourbourg actually did some research that we'll talk about in a little bit, like real research in the 1860s that was really important in ancient Maya studies, right? I'd heard his name. And so I was like, oh, right, that guy. Oh, my God. How is how is he a pseudo-archaeologist? I, I, knew, I knew I didn't know the whole story, you know, and I knew that there was something weird about him. I, I knew that he was really hot and cold. Like, he had some discoveries that were really neat. And then there were these other, like, shaky-bakey parts to him. You know, so I had a good time just learning about Charles Etienne Brasseur de Bourbourg. And I thought I'd just kind of go through through it with you guys and, and kind of share what I learned. Now, first, Charles Etienne Brasseur de Bourbourg is French. He's a French guy. It's good I'm here. It's good I'm here with my PhD to translate that for you and tell you that. And you know where he was born? He was born in Bourbourg, France. Yeah. So his name is really Charles Etienne Brasseur, who's from Bourbourg. You know, you know how they used to do that? I think maybe I, I was born in San Leandro, California. So I think I'm going to go from now on by Dr. Andrew Kinkella de San Leandro. I think, you know. I think it sounds kind of cool. So from now on, just remember that. Okay. Uh, I'll go, I'll go with Kinkella de San Leandro for, for short. But so this guy, he did a lot of stuff. I got, he started, he seems to me like a very academic kind of person. As we explore Borborg, we'll, we'll, we'll see that he focuses on writing and history. A lot of this stuff, although he does a lot of other kind of, related things, things that are all quite academic, takes a lot of brains, right? He, although he's born in a smaller town in France, he of course makes his way to Paris as a young man. He's in, he's in Paris in his twenties where he's like writing papers and he's writing books. He is accused of plagiarism 
And isn't it interesting? Haven't we heard that on this show? Like a lot of times, you know what I mean? Like, you're like, yeah, I've kind of heard the plagiarism thing almost every time. It's basically just because each of these guys just steals what the previous guy did and just kind of puts their name on it. You know, the, the citations in pseudo-archaeology are terrible. But, you know, this was in his early days. Hey, he, I will say that later on he did some real stuff. You know, we want to take the good with the bad. So as he, as he spends his 20s in Paris writing his books and writing his papers, he changes course a little bit. And by the time he's 30, he's ordained a priest. It's like, okay. And then, and then he goes from France and moves to Canada and he's a professor for a while. So he's a professor teaching basically religious history in Quebec. So for whatever reason, that doesn't work out. Then he moves back to Europe. And by this time, he's in his 30s. So that's going to be like, what, maybe 1850 or so, give or take, for us, you know, give us a feel. This is still pre-Civil War times, right? For us, it's a long time ago. But he gets back to Europe. And in those times, he's in his, A, he's in his early, mid-30s. And, and he's like, you know what? I'm into this history stuff. I'm going to plan a trip to Central America, right? He's going to plan a trip. He's going to go to the ancient Maya world. And he actually gets sent originally as a missionary. And I believe his first year there is 1848. So he's going to be around 34 years old. And what's interesting there is that's only about a decade after Stevens and Catherwood went to the Maya world. And Stevens and Catherwood are kind of the famous early explorers to the Maya world, right? Stevens is the New York lawyer who's also a really gifted writer. And Catherwood is the amazing artist who just draws like photorealistic images. You guys have probably seen some of Catherwood's lithographs. They are just spectacular right and so Stevens and Cathar would come back this is you know 1830s I think their first oh don't quote me I think their first book is published maybe 1841 I could be off by a year or two but it's it's right in there uh, of their adventures in in the Yucatan and it's basically a travel log and it's huge right so only 10 years after that still early early days right Borborg decides to do a version of the same thing. And when we come back, what did he find? And what did he write about? Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. All right. Hello and welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 130. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and we have been talking about and doing the setup for Charles Etienne Brassua de Beauvoir. And we are talking about his early days. And I got to say, and I think you guys have seen, so far so good. You know what I'm saying? Like there's nothing overtly pseudo-archaeological about this guy yet. You know, yeah, he did a little plagiarism when he was young. But, yeah, no, overall, he's been a, a professor. He's learning things. He's studying history. He's written a lot of stuff. He's kind of gone into the clergy world a little bit. And now he's used all that stuff to get himself down to Central America and explore down there. And he's he really focuses in Central America for a long time, you know, somewhere around, give, let's say 1848 to 1863, give or take. That's what, 15 years? And in terms of his life, he's he's going to start that when he's around 34 or 35 and going to end by the time he's 48, 49, whatever, something like that. That's a long time. That's a lot of focus in Central America. So for better or worse, you got to give the guy credit. He has been boots on the ground in the Maya forest for a long time, right? And in the in the area of Mesoamerica. And so his learning is not just sitting at a coffee table somewhere, right? Like he's he's living the dream. He's living the dream, my friends. And I also got to give him double credit, right? Not just for living the dream by actually going down there, but as we'll see, he starts to publish a bunch of stuff too. So it's like, hey, good for him. You know, he starts to publish like different books on things and kind of following in the footsteps of Stevens and Catherwood, who are already big stars of this. He kind of tries his own thing. In the late 1850s, he's going to publish a book basically on the history of the Aztec. Now realize this stuff, if you guys look it up, it's going to tend to be in French, right? He's going to do stuff in French. By the early 1860s, he's publishing some on the indigenous languages, like the Maya dialects and that kind of thing in the area. That's something real, right? By 1864, he's actually working as the archaeologist for the French military in Mexico. Really wild, right? And then in 1866, he publishes kind of a tome on the ancient monuments of Mexico. And included in that, I believe, is the site of Palenque, famous Maya site of Palenque, right? Really, really beautiful site. I've been there 
I highly recommend that that Maya site. You'll hear the cliche used that like Palenque is like the Paris of ancient Mesoamerica. And while that might be just a drippingly lame cliche, it's kind of true. When people ask me what Palenque is like, again, it's a classic period, Maya site, pyramids in the jungle and the whole thing. And it's actually where Pakal, possibly the most famous of all the Maya kings, that's where he ruled and where his sarcophagus is located. You know, when, when people ask me about that place, I just always go, yeah, it's really pretty. <laughs> like, I don't know what else to say. You know, I, I could be like, well, yes, you know, it's um, very important in Maya history. Uh, I, I could say that, but then I'm like, no, it's a... Uh, it's, it's really pretty. I actually have this photo that I took years ago. I think I took it in 96, right above my desk. And it's Palenque in the late afternoon. And just, you know how that like golden hour sunlight hits it? Ah, oh, you guys, just, just go to Palenque. But anyway, so Barbour writes a book on the monuments of, of Mexico and uses you know Palenque as as one of them. Now more on that in a minute. I'm gonna talk about a couple other things he publishes, and they're all in the 1860s. You know, so one of them might be 1866 or 1861. I'll kind of go back and forth here. I might go back a year or forward a year. Just it's for thematically what he publishes just to make it make more sense. I'm not just going to go through this list like by time. It's that would be lame. So I'm just going to talk about this. So right where so he has this book on the ancient monuments and that sounds really great. Right. At around the same time, he's back in Europe and because he's going back and forth. Right. He'll be in Europe. Then he goes out to Mesoamerica to do his studies back to Europe, kind of back and forth. When he's back in Europe. Dude, in, in 1862, he finds an abridged copy of Diego de Landa's Relacion de las Cosas de Yucatan, which that is incredible. Like, I have to give Borborg massive props on this. That is the book on the ancient Maya. So what is this? Diego de Landa was the Franciscan friar that did the original recording of some of the of Maya culture when he first got there, not long after the Spanish first arrived. The land is going to be there in like the like the let's see, 15, like the 1550s. Right. So for the Maya world, the very first Spanish contact is like 15, 18, 15, 19, depending on where you are in the Yucatan. So the land is getting there like what, 20 years, 30 years after initial content, long story short, very early days. And Diego de Landa is writing down all the stuff he sees because he wants to destroy it. He's basically writing a how-to guide to how to destroy the Maya, right? So that sounds like a terrible thing, and it is, but it isn't. It's terrible if you actually destroy the culture. It's great in terms of writing all the stuff down. So it actually becomes this text that has a lot of really, really good information. And it's Brasier de Bourbourg that finds this, kind of finds out about it. He has connections with different libraries and different collectors and this kind of thing. 
he finds it, he knows what it is and he gets it published, right? He gets it published in 1862, right? It's originally done in 1550. And so was that 15, 16, 17, like 300 years later, he basically republishes it, right? To get it out to a wider audience. And that's just massive, you know, but in publishing this, we start to see the cracks in the foundation of what Charles Etienne Brasseur de Bourbourg ultimately does. So again, so far I've said a bunch of great stuff and this is huge. You guys that, that he finds this and publishes it good for him, but he uses it and his translations. He tries to trans translate the Maya hieroglyphics. Basically he uses this to try and translate the Maya hieroglyphics, which decades upon decades later, will be exactly what we do. He tries it and gets it totally wrong, right? So he finds this thing, which is great, but then he tries to translate the Maya hieroglyphics and totally eats it totally wrong without getting too deep into it. He does it in sort of an alphabetic style, which is totally wrong. Maya hieroglyphics are like syllabic. They basically are, each symbol is a sound chunk. You know, it won't be like ABC. It's like pluck, cruh, slap. You know, it has, it, they're sound chunks. So he had it totally wrong. But hey, man, it's 1862. I feel for him. I understand that he's not going to be able to translate these things like we could. So I don't hit him so hard for that. What's he going to do? It's 1862. I'm going to hit him harder in a minute. So beyond that, he also, at the same time, right around the same time, he, does a translation of the Popol Vuh, the Maya creation mythology in French. Good for him. It's massive. He talks about some of the, like the Quiche Maya. That's a, that's a Maya sub language, basically. Talks about the Quiche Maya. He talks to some about the mythology. This is all awesome stuff. But at about this time, with all his Maya knowledge, which is impressive for 1862, he wraps it all up and explains it by adding Atlantis to everything. And when we come back, what does that get us? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hello and welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 130. I'm your host one last time, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and we are wrapping up Charles Etienne Brasseur de Bourbourg. 
And we have been saying, wow, he did a lot of interesting first things for the world of Maya studies, right? He um, found a copy of Diego de Landa's Relacion de las Cosas de Yucatan. It's this really kind of large book of Delanda's writings that Borborg republished in 1862. That's just huge for Maya studies. He attempted a translation of Maya hieroglyphics. He failed, whatever it happens. He did a translation of the Pulpal Vu. That's like, that's great, man. Good for him. But he also has all this information now that he explains everything, all his deep, interesting knowledge by saying it's connected to Atlantis and the way that the old world, right? The European culture and the new world, Maya culture is connected is through Atlantis. So you guys, this is where like Ignatius Donnelly and all those other fools, this is where they get it from, right? They get it from this guy, Bressier de Bourbourg, who's, trying to make connections where he doesn't have any data and just throws Atlantis in. And what really hurts the cause of science here is also that, remember the book I I told you, the one he did in 1866, the ancient monuments of Mexico that had Palenque in it and stuff. He had this guy, Jean-Frederick Waldeck, illustrate it for him. And Waldeck did the illustrations in a really like classic antiquity style. Like it looks like Greece and Rome. Like it has that vibe. It looks like, like, you know how the statue of David looks? It's, it's that kind of look. And he draws all the Maya people and the hieroglyphics in that style and just take huge flights of artistic fancy. And it looks just funny and weird. And I think it's odd that you have this kind of stuff, especially after Stevens and Catherwood, because Catherwood was like such the incredible lithograph artist, like just so photorealistic that once you have Catherwood, Catherwood just crushes everyone. But his images are still good today. So you have this guy Waldeck just draw these weird like classical and they all have those classic funky contrapposto poses, you know, so it just it looks like this weird like, wait, I'm in Rome, but there's it's kind of jungly. Like, that's what it looks like, you know. And so it just gives it's like if I'm the general public and I'm looking at Waldeck's drawings of the Maya world, which are just like flights of fancy. I would think the Maya were related to Greece and Rome. Right. And it would make an idea like Atlantis being the connection between it all make a lot more sense. You know, but it's just all predicated on fake bullshit. And this is the kind of stuff that modern pseudo archaeologists like Graham Hancock, this is the kind of stuff that they call back to. And they talk about this crap as if it was a fact, right? As if like it was Waldeck who uncovered this great information. No, Waldeck was just had no idea what he was doing. So he just drew stuff in the classical Greek style. You know, so it just gives it a totally incorrect flavor. It's weird, you guys. Like, I I recommend just looking up some of these, you know, Maya 
images by Waldeck. You'll see. They have all those funky, again, the, the poses. You know, you'd be like, oh, they're all posed like Greek statues. It's a bunch of Maya guys, like, posed like they're, like they're in Greece. So as time goes on, you know, we're getting to the late 1860s. Borborg writes more. He has a he has a book, I think it's called Four Letters on Mexico or something, where he goes onward more about the specific connection between the ancient Maya and ancient Egypt and Atlantis. That's really where Ignatius Donnelly gets his Atlantean stuff. And it's also this sows the seeds for a movement called Mayanism. And Mayanism is really, it's really even more 20th century, but, but it started here in the 19th century, that new age, like mixy matchy astrology, extraterrestrial, ancient astronaut, Graham Hancock, Eric Von Dyneken, you just mix and stir it all up. You know, that, that sort of fact free sort of pseudo religious thing, I think I'll do a podcast just on Mayanism because it has its own story. But the seeds for that are sown right here with Borborg's stuff. You know, like that's what they hearken back to. And so when you do a deep dive like this, you can see that the foundation is just worthless. Right. It is nothing. It's just smoke. And that's what I find. So that's why I love doing this. You know, I love I love spending an afternoon and brushing up on Bressier de Borbourg, you know, and and being like, oh, right, that. Oh, yeah, the guy. Oh, right. The guy with the Delanda Relacion. Right. You know, but that he also had these writings, these sort of out of left field writings that that started a movement just built on nothing. You know, it's really it's a really interesting trip. Well, to to be like, wow, it really is nothing. Borg did have one more trick up his sleeve. All around, at around this time in the 1860s, he also he identified and published half of the Codex Madrid, the Madrid Codex. Now, you guys, there are four. This is a Maya Codex. There are only four known codices in the world that survived, you know, after the Spanish burned all of them. And he found the first half of the Madrid Codex and published it. The, the second half came to light later and it was put together. But that just that too. Amazing. Right. Good for you. Uh, Bresser de Borborg, man, just with his again, with his connections with libraries, museums, collectors, he knew what it was. He realized its importance and published it. Right. So this was this is a copy of the original bark paper screen fold they fold out right maya books i've seen one of them in person at at a museum and they're they're very impressive but yeah the madrid codex really really great so by that time He's, you know, he's getting he's getting older. He's in his early 50s. He's going to end up dying in Nice in 1874. Have you ever been to Nice? I have. Nice is, well, here we go. It's nice. 
It is. Nice is nice. I, dude, the, the beach there, nice place. If you have to pick a place to die, I think Bressier de Bourbourg made a good call in dying in Nice. So ultimately, with this really interesting career, you know, what would I say ultimately about Bressier de Bourbourg? I don't mind him. What else is he supposed to do? Again, you know, it's 1860. And I have to give the guy massive props for finding and publishing this stuff. Like that pushed Maya studies way forward. But uh, I, I, and I, again, I don't even hit him for an incorrect translation. That's tough. But I do hit him for all the Atlantis silliness. It's like, dude, you did not have to do that. Like, that's silly. So, you know, in the end, I would say that Bresser de Bourbourg was a great recorder of archaeology and history, but a terrible translator, right? He was great at collecting the facts and the data, but terrible at putting it together. And I even wonder... For somebody like him, you know, if he was like reincarnated today and could see what we've done, I kind of think he'd go with the science. I kind of think he'd throw away all the Atlantis stuff because, again, he didn't have much of a better explanation. I think he would look at it and go, oh, oh, right. Yeah, this Atlantis stuff is stupid. Oh, right. Yeah, no, this is much better. I think he would be really excited for the steps we've made in modern Maya archaeology. So... In the end, Charles Etienne Brassier de Bobog. You get a big pass from Dr. Andrew Kinkella de San Leandro because, hey, you tried your best, man. And it's not your fault that those that came after you were such screw ups. And with that, I'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast. Please like and subscribe wherever you like and subscribe. And if you have questions for me, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, feel free to reach out using the links below or go to my YouTube channel, Kinkella Teaches Archaeology. See you guys next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.